0: hi there and welcome to chinwag i'm trying my best to do my intros and i know i keep on saying i will do something then i never do another chinwag rolls around and i do my own like kind of intro i don't know i guess i'll still be doing it in this particular way in a decade's time (laughs) if i'm still doing chinwags in 10 years time i don't know maybe i will with me today is a chap I think I first met at one of Stephen Foskett's tech field days, if I remember rightly, but uh, it may be our pastor Christ, uh crossed, crossed Before, his name's Chris Wall, uh, and uh, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing the surname right, so you can correct me on that, but uh, Chris, can you introduce yourself to people listening in for us?
1: Sure, yeah, you got it right, it's Chris Wall. I'm uh, a blogger at wallnetwork.com. And uh, I work for a a partner from VMware where I do uh, data center engineering as my day job. And uh, we definitely did meet at, uh, I believe, virtualization field day number two Mm. from Stephen Foskett's uh, tech field days.
0: Was that in Boston or was that in Silicon Valley? I forget now.
1: That was in San Jose, I think, earlier this year.
0: Yeah, yeah, God. All
1: that
0: time ago. It's like where is the year gone? Because it's uh, yeah. it's December the seventeenth at the moment, but this 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 podcast might actually go out in the new year. And I think we're all sort of looking back at the year, going, "Wow, look at all the stuff that happened." And he said something else there. But Chris, um, apart from the kind of high level stuff, tell us a bit more about you. I mean, how did you get started in, say, virtualization, for example? And you know, what what kind of things are you doing? right now and where do you see yourself going in the next five years it sounds like a job under your question, but it's, it's not are you HR department I don't know it or
1: <laughs> what's going on? yeah so I think my story is pretty typical you know I started around with VMware Workstation back in like 2006 or so and and it was uh it was cool and it was new and it was there's was a lot of interesting ways you could use virtualization that we really hadn't thought of before so that's uh that was kind of my start and then just kind of got bigger and better from there um you know day to day virtualization i deal with a lot of enterprise space environments so it's a lot of the the big you know 40,000 plus square foot data centers so i get to see some pretty interesting tech out in the field i think you call them kits in uh across the pond yes. Yeah,
0: so. kids or uh, sometimes we say estates i don't know how that word caught on but we, <laughs> we sometimes talk about estates i don't know where it comes from maybe it's the the lord and the lady in their estate the enterprise has their estate i don't know
1: estates okay yeah there's always there's all sorts of uh uh european words that i'm learning like pants is a bad thing so <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been fun uh, the,
0: the, it's generally a bad thing but not <clears throat> if you're wearing them you know okay unless they're on your head of course then then that's really a Regarded as a bit about a fashion I right, over here in the UK. So, and, and so I mean, so you're looking at a lot of big environments, and like, what's what's new on your horizon? Say, well, what are you expecting to be doing in the in the new year? Have you got projects coming up in the new year that seem to be wetting your appetite?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty booked already into 2013, which is surprising, uh, and it's a lot around. You've got some traditional stories where it's still people trying to just virtualize and and they're trying to move, you know, data warehouses or things that previously we thought we couldn't virtualize, databases and, and you know, real-time transactional stuff. Uh, but also we're seeing, you know, I'm personally seeing a lot of this activity around I want to have two data centers, I want them both to be active, I want to stretch my network across them, you know, I want to... I want to really make myself bulletproof when it comes to any kind of geographical outages, and uh, there's just a lot of discussion around that lately.
0: It is, it is. I mean, I mean, we hadn't planned to talk about this, and I, I don't want us to go too off piece because we haven't even got into our first question yet. <laughs> but it is something that has sort of, um, I don't know what, to, how to describe it. Taken off, caught on, catch, caught on a little bit in a way that perhaps other technologies haven't. And I was talking to. Um, Frankfurt vMug the, the other week, and I was saying, you know, when you go to have discussions about DR, it often falls on deaf ears. But if you talk about site availability and the availability of your site, somehow the A word goes down better with people than the DR word does. They seem yep. to, there's a, a, it's just a phraseology thing. We're still doing the same thing. We're offering a, well, a, 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 a level of availability beyond just an individual server or an individual rack. But it seems like if you talk availability and mention site in that, it seems to get more traction than if you talk sites and disaster recovery. I don't know. Maybe it's because people see DR as being a, a once in a blue moon, but this active, active, moving our loads around and <laughs> dynamic, it seems to be a bit more sexier. I don't know.
1: It is. It is a lot sexier. And I, th- I think you've hit it right on the head. That's, you know, DR, you think of this big money pit where you have a dark site that just sits there and does nothing. And you think active, active, it just, it just, it does sound a lot more attractive. Yeah. You, know, you can use but, both.
0: But you can do, you could call, you, I mean, nobody does SRM in a dark site way right? because it's, <laughs> it's bloody expensive. You know, most yeah. people do look for another sign and, if that scientist is not near enough or too far away, then they will think about Rackspace and so on. But anyway, we're drifting into a DR conversation. I wonder why that might be. So um, one of the kind of ironies, I was mentioning that I was in Frankfurt, and it just so happened that, that Chris was in Frankfurt at the same time. And I, I must admit, it was kind of my fault, because I didn't think, you know, the HP Discover event was on in Frankfurt. Maybe some people I knew in the community would be around. And I must admit, I was kind of hoping that there would be some sort of VBS event associated with the Frankfurt Mug, but there wasn't. So if I'd been a little bit more kind of um, active, maybe we could have actually hooked up uh, for physical rather than for virtual. But you were at the HP Discover event. And so my question was, is what did you learn? And was there any like key takeaways that people who come from a VMware background would have been interested in?
1: And and so at the, the, the Frankfurt Discover event, I was definitely there trying to gleam any kind of VMware-related news I could out of it, since that's kind of my background. I'm not. I like HP technology, but I like to see how I can apply it, you know, specifically in, in vSphere and VMware environments. Sure. Um, so the big the big takeaway at this show was around storage and um, around the fact that the three par now comes in a smaller, you know, uh, I think it's the two uh, U and and four U type devices. Uh, that you can get with the, the store serve. And one thing that kind of tickled me on that was I saw uh, some technologies where you could potentially place two of these in a smaller site. You know, we're not talking six-figure budget to to buy one of these things. It's more mid to low five figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could... It, it sounds like they can replicate the storage between one another. Uh, so I'm thinking maybe some kind of technology similar if you're familiar with EMC's VPlex where we... Are going to have that storage available both sides potentially map uh, a vsphere cluster to both devices i'm not exactly sure how that would work uh, because it 's not certified for the the, uh, the metro clustering uh, from VMware yet, mm. uh, but it sounds like that 's where that 's going to go, and to me that 's always the holy grail of storage to get something that 's available both sites you can because vsphere isn 't you know intelligent enough to understand where the storage is just you give me storage i 'm going to use it. Uh, so this sounds like it could be an interesting move towards uh, or at least a play towards a stretch cluster, um, which I think a lot of people would be interested in.
0: And sometimes that lack of intelligence is quite useful because you just present the storage and the host just sees storage. doesn't care how it's being carved upon and presented. Another time is we do want that greater level of intelligence so it knows what's actually going on underneath. And I guess it's getting those balances between we want the insights that are valuable, but we also quite like it when... The horse doesn't know what's going on because it's sure. kind of a separation, abstraction layer as, as, as well. Was there anything that, else that uh, came up on your radar when you were at uh, Frankfurt?
1: I was actually, <laughs> so I haven't written about it yet, but I did see a lot of neat developments in, uh, for, at least for me, uh, I'm into the mobile lab space uh, with laptops. And unfortunately, I'm or fortunately for me, I'm not a Mac guy, so I don't like MacBook Pros and things like that. But they had a lot of neat New offerings around their um, their laptop lines. Uh, the names escape me at the moment, uh, but around the the ultrabooks and the sleek books, uh, where you could have for under a thousand dollars, you could have sixteen gigs of RAM, the uh, like quad core processor, you know, five hundred gig storage. And I got to talking with the guy, and and what I what I find that's difficult in the mobile lab is to get. All those different attachments to it, without having to get adapters like VGA and DVI and Display Port and USB ports and things, where you can really demo while you're on the road, or maybe you're just trying to learn for a certification, and you don't want to blow, you know, five six thousand dollars, or I don't know how much your half cabinet cost, but uh, it can get expensive. So I thought uh, some of the new offerings they had for under a grand were pretty powerful conversations around. Home labs or certification machines.
0: I mean, this video will probably be cropped when it goes out. But is that your home lab I can see behind you on on that shelf? Yeah, that's that's it there. So
1: it's not cheap. No, it isn't.
0: I mean, um, I I think it's interesting you mentioned the kind of mobile lab because you do still see an awful lot of people carrying a number of laptops around with them for for demos. And I mean, you mentioned MacBook Pros, and I know internally in VMware. Amongst the SEs doing demos in that particular way is, is still quite popular, but it's always kind of surprised me that people want to do that when, you know, remote access and and such like is possible, and you can have a very production-like environment that you could you know RDP into or remote desktop in and do your demos that way. But I guess that that doesn't appeal, and I guess there's always that danger of what if one of the links is down. My demo is DOA, whereas if I carry it all on a laptop, you know, assuming the laptop is a DOA, you you Mm. carry your lab with you. Is that the appeal to you you when you do that kind of work?
1: Well, it's not so much the danger of Internet. I mean, just being out in the field a lot, it's not, it's very, very much common to find places where either there's no Internet at all or I'm not allowed to get on the Internet or it's just I'm in a data center or I'm in a data center conference room. And uh, there's there's no you can't even use a MiFi or a four G device. Really? So, they won't
0: even allow you yeah. to use a three G stick in there. It,
1: it either they either they have a compliance issue where they won't, or the signal is just so bad that even if you tried presenting it, it just wouldn't work. So, I've come to I've come to find that uh, even in let's say for example in, in Frankfurt, um, you know I'm used to going to a Starbucks or something and having Wi-Fi for free. In that city, I don't think I found a single open Wi Fi port. So
0: Well, I, I joke at me when I did that trip, I got the typical text message from my UK provider who is orange and operates across Europe, but somehow a one hour, thirty minute flight from the UK to Germany meant that it was now sixty eight pence per megabyte of data, which is is a phenomenal amount of money for <laughs> one meg worth of data. And there yeah. has been in the in the in the uh Europe for a while, you know, discussions about, you know, the the EU needs to regulate more strongly the roaming rates that people pay when they move around Europe. But it, it's funny, I I found in different European countries you go to a hotel, the Wi Fi is completely free. Where I was staying it was, but then you go somewhere else and it's you know, a stupid amount of money just to be on, you know. And you're being gouged really. I think the Wi Fi units and um the MyFi units, sorry, and the 3G sticks have taken off in the UK with people traveling in the UK to avoid paying fees in a hotel, you know. Anything mm-hmm. from, I don't know, 20 to 60 bucks for a week's worth of internet access in a hotel, which is just, I just think it's outrageous. But anyway, that's just it my view. So. <laughs> did, did, you, did you have a, a third thing from from HPD Discover or was was, was those the, the top ones for you?
1: Those were the two top ones for me other than, you know, I... I did get updated on some of the new certifications that they're coming out with uh, around. Uh, they got some more cloud type stuff, and they're updating. I, I think the Expert One program. I, I know a, a friend of mine named Carl that works with the Expert One program is really trying to expand it uh, to be all-encompassing beyond just HP technology. They want to get it so that you understand the concepts of, you know, converged infrastructure and cloud and things like that. So I definitely seen them expanding the portfolio. Um, as well as they've done a good job, especially recently, including uh, – like I'm a CCNP. They're going to allow me to use that as a prerequisite for some higher-level HP exams, that is which always, is very
0: nice. That's always very useful when one vendor chooses to recognize the certification of another as being – you qualify. Because the number of times you end up doing certifications across vendors where essentially being asked the same thing more than once. And then very right. often the vendor will have their own particular take – so you have to learn the HP or VMware or Microsoft view of things, even though they're both talking about the same kind of thing. So I think it's brilliant when because it it can be a burden, I think, certifications. And the more that one vendor recognizes the certification of another, the less burdensome it is for the for the individual to keep their certification. Absolutely. Today, or even get on board a new certification. Right. Which actually, I think in a way, um, we might flip the questions around because one of our questions was concerned, certification so it kind of feel weird to do our, our next question and then talk <laughs> about certification after it which is um, you mentioned in your email when we were discussing what we would chat to about today that you've been going for the VCDX and I wanted to know what made you go for that certification and I said jokingly in the email apart from being able to say that you're VCDX 001 <laughs> in Chicago because there seems to be a... Uh, a phenomenon developing amongst the VCDX is where people want to claim to be the first VCDX, not in the world, but in their <laughs> particular area. So I was joking with yeah. Chris offline, I'm going to go for the VCDX, but in Papua New Guinea, so I can claim to be the first VCDX in Papua New Guinea and you know, keep the competition down, you know, because it'll be a bit of a, a high barrier. But joking joking aside, um, I guess it was it just that you'd ha- you felt you had enough experience uh, through being out there in the field that the vcdx wasn't going to be as difficult as some people might, might might imagine
1: ooh that's that's dangerous i'll never i'll never comment on the difficulty i mean it's i would imagine it's it's a unique experience for everybody so i won't say it's more or less difficult for me or anyone else um and uh, I was gonna I was gonna joke back with you and say you know it was absolutely I want to be the the first in Illinois or Chicago so that was the hundred percent driver to get it but that's absolutely false. But, so. but
0: are you the, the VCDX zero zero one in Chicago or is there another person who got that before you?
1: No, I think uh I think there's. There's some guys in like Minneapolis and ah, Indiana, uh, but there's really not a lot of us in the Midwest. Yeah, they don't count. They they're all they're count. all in, in California. So. <laughs> yeah. So there's uh yeah there's none none around here. Uh, but I think there's gonna be more as the I think the, the program just needs a little more um, marketing to it. Because mm. to be honest, I never really even heard of it prior to two years ago. Um, and uh, I think that's where John and and Mark uh, Brunstad and such are are doing a good job, you know, letting people know what the program is and how do you do it. Before it was kind of, it was difficult. Uh, I said I wouldn't say difficult. It was it was it was difficult to even get into the program prior to I think some of the education just because you didn't know what it was or how to do it. It was shrouded. I think they're they're fixing that. Um, As far as uh, experience and things like that, I don't know. I've noticed that a lot of the guys that go for the VCDX are very heavily steeped in the architecture side of the house. so, for me, it was definitely a fear that because I am such a, uh, you know, I've, I've been invested more in the engineering and the delivery side of the house, if you want to talk consulting, you know, pre sales, post sales kind of stuff. Um, you know, it was definitely a fear that, uh, the design part would be, uh, something that I wouldn't have, you know, strong grasp on. Um, you know, beyond that, I don't think there's any amount of time that you have to invest to get VCDX as far as, oh, you have to be a 10-year veteran or a 5-year veteran uh, or even how long you've been certified. I know uh, um, another gentleman, uh, uh, Randy, had, um, I think he said he had been doing it for six months or something, got certified VCP uh, six months to a year prior to uh, getting his VCDX. Mm -hmm. So even the certifications, you don't need, you know, vcp2 number 500 or something like that you can jump right in so I mean I, I hope that answers that question
0: did you did you find yourself drawing on um sort of real life experiences and uh, there's a certain amount of scenario scenarioness presenting <laughs> scenarios and explaining why certain decisions were made over x and y and having to explain maybe maybe where you did deviate from best practices because the customer situation decreed that that particular best practice didn't actually apply to them, whereas in other cases they did. So, I mean, did your in-field experience help?
1: It did, and I think it was a a strength, not a weakness or a a hindrance, all the field experience, just because a lot of the conversations had already been had in the past, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, You know, not so much around – the big challenge for me was to learn the terminology around constraints assumption, risk, requirement, and the conceptual design. So that field experience really wasn't there. I had to kind of make that up mm-hmm. uh, um, in a short period of time. But the rest of it, yeah, I mean, if you deal with customers a lot, you deal with deal with people a lot and environments a lot, I think it's absolutely phenomenal practice for the VCDX just to have you know experience dealing with situations where you don't know all the answers. You're going to be put on the spot to come up with answers and you're not necessarily gonna know the best way to do it right off the bat but you're able to logically work through what the best answer might be or get close Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot about what this certification is really all about is that you can take the information you have at hand organize it in such a way that you can come up with an answer on the fly you know you can come up with an answer um, without all that much assistance you know with as far as you know I hate best practices and things like that you don't really rely on those you kinda come up with them as you deal with the environment. So, mm-hmm. my was, opinion on that. <laughs> I was
0: um, kind of discussing best practices with um, the Frankfurt VMUG when I was there. Oh, it might have been the Swedish VMUG. I forget now. And I read so many of them. I've been, yeah, and I was saying <laughs> how, you know, how do best practices come about? Do they come about from genuine customer experiences, which then feed back into the ISV, in my case VMware, it could be somebody else, which then become best practices, or do those best practices often reflect limitations in the technologies, thus that the the software vendor knows that if you deviate from them, you're going to get yourself potentially in a world of, of pain. And if it is those particular types of best practices where the best practices are really being geared around limitations of the product, the problem is, is that when the product changes, the best practices can change as well because those limitations Absolutely. can go overnight. And One of the things I always found as a, an instructor was I'd, I'd often have people on a training course and then not see them ever again for version 3, 4, and 5. And then those same uh, contractors would be the consultants who would be advising customers who then wind up in my courses, who say, the consultant says this, and I go, well, that's wrong. And then they say, but the consultant attended your training course, <laughs> and I go, that's true. And I said, but it's also true that was three years ago or four years ago and best practices have been updated and changed because technology never stays still. So I think um, kind of speaking to a little bit about those certifications we talked about before, the training learning processes ongoing throughout the whole of your career, it doesn't stop once you achieve certification. In fact, it's probably just the the beginning of it. So I mean, I think I think the VCDX is a great achievement. But like any certification, it's then going to be maintained throughout its its life, hasn't it? But hopefully with a more kind of architectural designing element, though those principles don't change as much as you know. Should I use this radio button over that radio button? You know the sort of nitty gritty of, of certain departments. Sure. But anyway, let's go tech because we have talked about a lot of sort of fluffy stuff so far. Um, and one of the topics you said that you wanted to talk about was NFS on VSphere, which. Um, I'm certainly interested because I'm a bit more of an advocate for NFS than I was perhaps in the in the past. Certainly, in my lab environment, it's a godsend <laughs> to be able to mount and unmount storage to present a different kind of configuration, rather than uh, you know deal with masking issues or uh, uh, target issues if it's iSCSI. So it sounds mm-hmm. like you're a bit of an advocate as well. Um, so I wanted to know why you liked it so much, what you don't like about it in terms of you know vSphere. And is if there are anything that vSphere and the NFS providers, and we know who they are, could do to make your life better. So it's kind of tell me, tell me what we're doing good, and tell me what we could be doing better.
1: All right, well, we'll start with the good, um, and I'll uh, I'll give you a little background on why I'm into NFS on vSphere. I actually managed a large company's infrastructure for a VMware environment, and it was completely on NFS. And this was when I had been through a class, an uh, instructor class for vSphere four, and was, you know, strictly entailed upon me that NFS is for ISOs, you know, for mounting really? ISOs. And yeah, it was NFS you don't run VMs on NFS. You know, it was basically the takeaway I got That's from ISIM board. That's though, <laughs> isn't it? So I came in this environment and saw, you know, there was hundreds of virtual machines all running on NFS. We won't talk names of vendors, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but And it it was eye-opening because I thought, at the time, it also taught me that the instructors may be wrong. (laughs) And it also taught me that, wow, NFS is actually something I can use to run virtual machines on. Um, And being from a person who had done a lot of fiber channel and zoning and masking and all that fun stuff you were talking about, the idea of just updating an ACL on your export to allow a host to tie to it and then basically a couple clicks and you're done was pretty appealing. You know, if you want to add or remove hosts or or change your NFS storage, it's incredibly easy. Um, And I actually wrote quite a few articles on NFS, and I bring that up because someone made the comment, and I really love this comment, that um, NFS is easy from an administrative standpoint and extremely hard from a design standpoint, Mm. whereas Fibre Channel is kind of the other way around. You know, it's easy to design. Fibre Channel is Fibre Channel. We do it all the time, but hard administratively to keep up with it and keep it running. Uh, so that's definitely one of the big reasons I like NFS is that, yes, as an administrator, as a you know a VMware administrator, it made my life very easy.
0: So why why is Fibre Channel hard uh, to maintain? Well, I think I know the answer to that, but uh, <laughs> why is NFS harder to architect? That's the one I'm less sure about. All
1: right, we'll start with, uh, so NFS is hard to architect because... There's all these rules that we don't, you know, traditionally don't think about, um, when we talk NFS. And that's because a lot of, at least me, when I started working with NFS, I wasn't really a network guy. And there's a lot of network rules and, and layer two and layer three things that you need to know in order to architect a good NFS environment. Such as if you don't understand VLANs and, and, and routing versus switching, uh, you may completely set up the NFS environment incorrect. You may have it, you know, routing and going over different VLANs and, and things like that, which prior to, I think, 5.1 wasn't even supported. Uh, you weren't allowed to do that. Uh, as well as um, how we set up our VM kernels for NFS. You know, the fact that if we have one VLAN uh, for NFS traffic, doesn't matter how many VM kernels we put on our host, it's going to use just one of those mm-hmm. and send all the traffic over one kernel to our NFS target or export. There's no load um,
0: balancing across those particular NFS no. ports? No.
1: Now a lot of people would set up Ether channels or two active uplinks and think, "Oh, yeah, now I get two or twenty gigabits of bandwidth, whatever card you had." And realistically, I'd open up ESX top and show them, you know, it's it's this uplink that's doing all the work; the other ones are completely sitting there idle. And there's just a lot of education around why that was. And and I would work with environments literally; we had to kind of rearchitect everything from scratch to get it working properly for NFS. Um, so that's not really a fault of NFS; it's just understanding how networking works really. Um, so the people so, who
0: did those early implementations with NFS didn't really understand what the requirements were and therefore couldn't meet those requirements.
1: Exactly, yeah. It was just, it was just a, a, a poor design initially or a person just wasn't educated on how to, how to design for NFS properly.
0: And I guess it's fair to say with, with with fiber channel, you know, you've got a single switch. You don't tend to do routing between fiber channel environments, do you? Right. You know, so it, the kind of technology lends itself because it's kind of restrictive, inverted commas, to a design which then leads to a decent outcome in terms of I.O. because you are kind of lumbered with an access mechanism which is totally different from the way NFS works with Ethernet.
1: Sure, and also when you think about design a lot of times if you don't understand the design of you know let's say fiber channel you can google fiber channel design and probably a, a billion hits come up uh, from every single vendor and switch you know, brocade and, and EMC and everyone has all these reference architectures you can very easily copy off of NFS I noticed there wasn't a lot of information out there um, uh, the information that was out there was mostly around, you know, how do I mount NFX to a Linux host or a Unix host or more kind of not VMware cases, we'll say, not designing it for any kind of storage.
0: I wonder whether that just comes from the history because obviously NFS support didn't come until uh, VI3 um, and iSCSI support didn't come until that release but there was ESX1 and ESX2 where basically if you wanted to do anything in the world of vMotion, you had to have fiber channel. And therefore the community was more educated because, well, that's how it was done. When something new comes along, it takes time for a billion hits to accrue on on Google on a particular feature that's relatively new. So maybe it's a bit of a throwback to that history. I know it's a long time ago now, but it, it it takes a while for that sort of information to filter out in a crew i guess is that a fair thing to
1: say no i think that's fair and yeah i think prior to easter 4 really no one thought of putting vms on nfs or at least
0: i was was kind of horrifying to hear that your instructor said that you don't run vms on nfs because when nfs first became available one of the things i would say to people is look you've got this video from netapp where they're spinning up a gazillion uh, VMs for a VDI environment and look how much disk space they save by deduplication. And I think it's probably still true today that NFS and VDI has this very strong usage case together, you know, given that Mm -hmm. fiber channel is probably the most expensive storage you can have. And, you know, cost per VM is quite important, you know. And a lot of those NFS providers are providing, you know, V I uh via copy and uh, the ability to create many virtual machines just by creating a pointer, so not using link clones from VMware, but you know using a storage mechanism. So sure. that, that initial investment and benefit for VDI is still showing its thumbprint even to the day. What I think's interesting about that is, as as instructors, it was all sort of drummed home to us that you don't say, NFS is better than Fibre Channel or Fibre Channel is better than iSCSI or iSCSI is better than either, because You don't know what the customer's going to have. And there's nothing worse in life than when a customer says, we've got X and your initial response is, well, you shouldn't have bought that. You should have bought something else. (laughs) It's like when I have a problem with a device, like I had a problem with my iPhone the other week. I forget what it was. And somebody said, well, you should have bought an Android or a Nexus. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but uh, do you seriously expect me to put this in the bin and buy a new phone just to solve this problem? I want to fix to my problem within the, the technology I've got. Telling me I should have bought something else just really actually pisses me off. (laughs) So in a way to to say, oh, well, you should use X for Y, it's not going to go down very well with a customer who's chosen Y and you're saying immediately, well, you you should have chosen X. And the analogy I've sometimes used it is there's an old Irish joke or an English joke about Irish people, which is well known, which is you're lost in your car in Ireland somewhere and you pull down the window and you say to the Irishman, how do I get to uh, Donegal? And the Irishman responds, well, I, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> it's like, I would drive 30 miles somewhere else, and then start from there, because I wouldn't have started from here. But you are where you are, and therefore being told that you need to be somewhere totally different doesn't actually help you, you want to fix your problem. So, I mean, sure. I, I've I've always tried to be a bit neutral, and I talked about the advantages and disadvantages of both. Like, One of the things that I've often seen with NFS and iSCSI is the weakest link isn't the protocol, it's IP. So all it takes is some idiot to type in the same IP address as the target that you're trying to get to, as a VM kernel address, which is on the same VLAN, and they've created an IP conflict with the target, to which all my other nodes have got sessions to. And it used to happen every week or every other week on a training course, you had 12 NFS IP addresses for 12 students, and then another IP address was, was the thing they were trying to get connecting, and without fail, one out of those 12 would type in the IP address of the target, and then the other 12 or 11 people go, it's not working for us anymore. Yep. And it's like, wow, it was working two seconds ago, now somebody's typed in an IP address and now it doesn't work. What do you think might have happened, given that I haven't touched it? And nobody else has touched <laughs> it. So I, I, I've often, and I, I've seen it in my own lab environment where I go around and I'm a bit uh, loose and goosey on the IP allocations. And then I go, oh, uh, yeah, I've created a problem this week. I mean, I did it just a couple of weeks ago. I, I was doing something in vCloud director with IP rangers. And I forgot that one of those IP rangers was assigned to one of my iSCSI systems. And neither vCloud director or the iSCSI system was particularly happy about that. The fact that they were both exposed in the same network was wrong to begin with. Yeah,
1: I was going to say, there you are. Right it is there. a lab environment.
0: But I'm, what I'm getting yeah. at is, is that the weakest link for me always seems to be not NFS NFSRI SCSI, but the protocol that backs it, the TCP IP, and the way that's being managed. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm talking about a very rarefied experience in a lab environment where you're really, basically you've got 12 admins and all 12 admins have to do the right thing at the right time and all it takes is one admin to screw up. And then it affects other people. I would have hoped in a more change management-controlled environment and you know, proper management tools over IP that never ever happens, or does
1: it? Yeah, the change controls are typically incorporated. Yeah, you wouldn't have twelve admins just going hog wild with with IPs. You know, I definitely see I definitely see a lot of change control used, and I don't think I've seen the duplicate IP issue before. Um, and also, you're talking about in a lab. We definitely want to isolate. This is the NFS VLAN. And nothing else uses this VLAN. Probably even lockdown. Who even has control over that? I would agree that IP is definitely an Achilles' heel there. At, le- at the very least, we'll say that the network piece is 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 a tough tough sell, at least for NFS, because
0: sure. I mean the other thing I've seen is is that people who say uh, rescans on a HBA in a fiber channel environment takes too long, and they've not correctly zoned the environment in the zone config. So they've gone for a very simple zone config where all initiators are in the same zone, which can generate, you know, excessive traffic, you know, when you do rescans and things like it. So I mean my attitude has always been about that difference is the protocol is good as the people who implement it <laughs> and it really has nothing sure. to do with the protocol and everything to do with the people who understand that protocol and manage it. But I, I guess we're kind of missing the back end of my question by us knocking things around this way, which is is there something that VMware or the NFS providers could do for you? That would make NFS even better than it is at the moment.
1: Well, I would say that from a... Let's talk vSphere first, or VMware. Okay. Uh, I would like to see VMware embrace NFS version 4 so that we could do parallel NFS. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, and I brought it up prior, and it sounds like the issue there is that NFS version 4 doesn't have an actual solid... Uh, standard yet. It's still kind of up in the air. Um, that would allow us to do parallel NFS basically the same way we do iSCSI where we can bind and have multiple uplinks we could do with NFS. So uh, I would like to see that incorporated from the perspective of VMware, You know, I guess solving some of the problems you're talking about where we can have misconfigurations or things like that. Um, I think there should be a little more at least around the VM kernel creation, a little more education around I'm building this for NFS uh, because when you go into a VMware environment, there's all these options for vMotion and management. There's even a little thing saying, "Guys, yeah. yeah, you can't indicate anything about NFS, um, or so I you SCSI, just have to understand
0: or I for that matter. Although with iSCSI, you can at least take VM, VMK five and VMK six and say those particular ports are used for load balancing. Yeah, um, but. It, but when you create the VM kernel port, you're right. You cannot mark it as this is a VM kernel port for storage. One of the reasons I've wanted that is I'm a heavy user of all these storage plugins from you know NetApp, EMC, and Dell. And especially when it comes to the NFS ones, they tend to use, obviously, IP as the way of controlling the ACL. But, of course, there's no way for that vendor to identify which out of my three four five six vm kernel ports are the ones that are being used for storage so what they're forced to do is dump every vm kernel port into that ACL. so that includes yeah. my vmotion potentially two ip ones because i'm using iSCSI and i want to do load balancing we just discussed nfs and load balancing you know being an issue and then what else might i have ft or something like that all of that ip gets dumped into the acl which it doesn't hurt I mean, it doesn't bite me or anything, but I'm just one of those people. When I go into an ACL, I don't expect things that shouldn't be there to be listed there. So, I mean, yeah. one of the things I end up doing is maybe I present a new volume to eight hosts. The wizard does the whole shoot and match, creates the data store, does the ACLs, maps it all to my host, and then I manually go back to the volume and then kick out the IP addresses I don't need. If there mm-hmm. was a marker, at least then pragmatically, those plugins could say, and only take the ones that are marked for IP-based storage. The trouble then is, well, some of them might be used for NFS and some of them might be used for iSCSI, some of them might be used for both. So, you know, would we want a second radio button to indicate whether it was NFS or <laughs> iSCSI, would you? Yeah. Which, you know, you can take it to the nth degree, but do you see, I could see your point of view and I'm thinking of a specific example where I've come across that issue and felt, even though this doesn't really cause me a problem, an ACL should only contain the the IPs that have rights, not. Otherwise, yeah, like your
1: ACL is you know this long too with, yeah, yeah. gobs of IPs, and well, and flipping that the other way, I've actually, I mean, uh, I know I've worked with NetApp quite a bit, and um, their VSC, I think it is uh, That's right. adapter. That's
0: storage console. Yeah.
1: There you go. Yeah, I just know the acronyms now. Um, it it was actually smart enough to. Yeah, everything starts with be <laughs> It was actually smart <laughs> enough to, to, you know, I presented a host and erroneously forgot the uh, the NFS VM kernel on there. And it said, well, I don't see anything on the subnet to my storage. So I'm not going to let you even mount this, this you know, I'm not going to let you do it routed or something. So mm-hmm. at least it was smart enough to look for a VM kernel port on the same subnet. And, you know, right, it, so it seems to be like looking. So
0: validation on the actual, right. um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Right. okay so, so I think there's stuff like that that's moving forward and fixing some of those problems. Okay.
0: So we're on to our uh, final last question. It's another kind of techie one, which was you said you wanted to talk about uh, some of the new functionalities, features, takeaways around the new iteration of the, the DV switch in vSphere 5.1. Um, I don't know specifically what you want to flag up, uh, but the floor is yours. What, what, what do you think?
1: Sure. Um, the biggest... I guess <laughs> educational point with the 5.1 dv switch is uh I was just had a session um last week in Orlando on you know becoming a VMware network expert and I hate the term expert but you know or mastering the VMware network and uh I pulled the audience and realized pretty much no one was using the DB switch even people that owned the licensing level, Brilliant. to use the DV switch. And I went around and asked, why not? Why are you not using it? Oh, you know, well, we don't want to put any of the management or vMotion stuff on the DV switch. We want on the V switch and we just figure we'll just leave it all on the V switch because of that. Um, so the rollback and and other testing-type tools that are baked into the 5.1, you know, you've got the the uh, configuration rollback, you've got the, uh, the network health checks and things like that, um, I really feel like and I, this is something I've been talking with a lot of clients with as well that there's not a huge reason not to shift over to the DB switch anymore. So there's do, you, enough... do you
0: feel that we've reached a kind of Rubicon where I mean we used to make this argument before even Fiverr came out uh, for a more hybrid model of standard switches and distributed virtual switches. Do you think we've crossed a Rubicon where really those who have the license should should move over everything to the DB switch?
1: Yeah I've I've not use the the hybrid model prior even on four i put everything on the db switch just okay. because i think it's a misunderstanding of how the the standard switch works uh, or, or uh, this will say the distributed switch with management ips you know they think they lose vcenter that the whole thing just comes crashing down uh and there are you know prior to 5.1 where we couldn't restore uh functionality to a db switch even without vcenter which we can do now in 5.1 uh the the fix was to you know temporarily make a vSwitch and throw a vCenter on it or, or whatever your infrastructure was temporarily to get it back and running. Even when that was a caveat, I still embraced dvSwitch for everything. You know, all the environments I managed, I pushed all over. It's just now with 5.1, we've really removed even that minor kind of complaint of, yeah, I got to build a vSwitch temporarily. We don't even need to do that anymore. So yeah, I think if you own the licensing, like you're paying Enterprise Plus money, get the DV switch out of it because it has so many goodies baked into it now that you're really doing yourself a disservice not sure. to move. over it.
0: I must admit, with the 5.1 drop, I made the decision to abandon the Windows virtual center and the you know the SQL backend. I've gone for the virtual appliance. And mm-hmm. the changes I was making in my lab environment, getting ready to learn more about vCounteract, was so drastic in terms of storage and what I basically decided to level. Uh, ground zero of the lab environment and start again from scratch. And so I abandoned the use of the standard switch um, three months ago. I don't have mm. it in any of my environments whatsoever. The only place I have a standard switch now is for the vShield endpoint, which does use a standard switch to communicate to the hypervisor for doing any right. endpoint work with. In case people don't know, endpoint is AV and I was doing quite a bit of work with Bitdefender a couple of months ago when I was writing the view book and I decided, well, I'm gonna carry on keeping that in my environment because I've got licenses that any Windows VM I spin up is already AB protected and it's just so much easier in a lab environment than having to deal with licenses, you destroy something, then that license is taken up, then you have to explain to the vendor, I need my licenses back because that was just a temporary VM I just don't sure. have to worry about that kind of stuff anymore. But I, I, I must admit the decision to switch over was more the time I felt that the flexibility that the distributed switch was going to give me was going to be greater, even on the management side. So what mm-hmm. I've done, and I don't know how you architect this and whether it's even right for VCDX, to be honest with you, is but I have two separate DV switches. One of them is the management switch, which contains all my management stuff, all the stuff that allows the platform to to work. And then I have a separate distributed virtual switch, which is where my VMs go, and never the twain meet. So no matter what I do to my infrastructure DV switch, it won't ever affect running VMs. Um, the the two don't match. But I, I guess that kind of setup was forced upon me because I don't have a dedicated cluster for management. And so what I've I've said to people, well, if you have this anxiety about where will my virtual center live. well, a lot of the big enterprises will have a dedicated cluster just for running their management stuff. Mm -hmm. Three or four hosts, I don't know how many. You could run that all on standard switches if you wanted to, but everything else on the distributed switch, you know. I I guess it matters more when your virtual center is running on the environment that it's managing and there isn't that separation, (laughs) which is, I've got that. You know, My Mm -hmm. VC runs on the same cluster my VMs run, run under, but I just soft separate them by different distributed switches and they're on different clusters or they're in a resource pool which has got high you know, reservations on so you know whatever happens to the cluster my infrastructure VMs are in a, in a, in a little bundle is that the kind of configuration that that you go for, a total separation or you know soft soft partitioning to keep them separate from each other?
1: Well for I think you hit it on the head with the management cluster in an enterprise environment we pretty much always do that and it's either one or two hosts. You know, we push for two, but sometimes one is purchased because it's just not that mission critical. You know, what's funny uh, about that is that
0: people will worry yeah. about running their virtual yeah. off <laughs> of the cluster, and everything else is running on like, it. What if the distribu- But it's okay to run it on a management cluster or one host. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't ever agree with the one-host <laughs> management. Uh, you know, like with we do a lot of work with vBlock, so they have the AMP Advanced Management Pod, and you can yeah. buy it as a one or two-node AMP and I definitely uh, I always push for the two node but there's quite a bit of cost when you go to the uh, the two node from the one node mm-hmm. so yeah when we build uh you know a, a management cluster I'm fine with standard switch because typically we don't want to pay the money for enterprise plus for a, a two node thing running vCenter you know so we'll just buy standard licensing or something like that uh, you basically just want vMotion and, and things like that on there uh, if you're going to do the inception model where it's vCenter managing itself in its own cluster, uh, I typically like to build a vApp. You know, if the SQL's on there as well, I put it all into a container of a vApp so that I get the start order set correctly. Yeah. Uh, you might even throw a domain controller in there so that it comes up first, then SQL, then vCenter, uh, and give it lots of resources. I think that's fine. What you were mentioning with the DV switch having two of them or one of them, uh, there's really no right way to do it. I've done it both ways. Um, it really just depends on your infrastructure. You know, If you only have two NICs coming out of that thing, well, then you can only make one Switch because yeah. you, know, you only have two.
0: Generally, my hosts have always had four NICs because back in the ESX2 days, that was that was the best practice, at least four NICs or more, and that was the most I could get. Either I ran out of PCI slots, and I was only using cheap two-port cards rather than quad-port mm. cards, or I'd just run out of ports on the Switch anyway. So it didn't matter that the host had 12 NICs in it because I just wouldn't have anything to plug them into. But I guess part of it was, I, was, I, was gonna, I realized I was going to start managing the network um, through the pane which is vCloud Director. And that kind of obscures the visibility of the virtual center in vSphere. And I was thinking, you know, this is a new product to me, and it'd be very easy for me to make a change. And if everything is all, all the turtles are on the same turtle there's a good chance that I could actually (laughs) cut through my own link. Um, And and let's face it, we've seen that people do that before with standard switches, you know, where people remove VM NIC 0 from their vSwitch0 and then wonder why their putty session isn't working anymore. Why? Mm -hmm. What's gone wrong? It's not, why isn't it responding to my, oh, it's because I blew away the NIC. So, I mean, if there are screw-ups that can happen at the standard switch, you know, it's not like it's some sort of the standard switches are mutable from any configuration errors. So why why feel that way about the distributed uh, virtual switch? I think the other funny thing that you said that so many people have the software, but don't adopt it. That's something I've seen with other technologies. Uh, So customers argue, you know, should we have standard, advanced, enterprise, enterprise, plus a lot of debate about the different features. Once they decide which one they get, they then buy it, and then they don't implement any of them. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, hmm, and you come back to them a year later or two years later, uh, have you enabled H A and DRS? Well, you know, we're still checking out H A and DRS, we haven't decided yet, <laughs> no. Yes, but yeah. we've gone into production with VMs that have no protection whatsoever and will all line up on one host because nobody bothers to do any, any load balancing. But we need to be a bit cautious about this H A and DRS business. I'm like, there's something screwed <laughs> I guess yeah. uh, I take a very uh, shortened view of things. I look at the benefits of the technology, and I look at the risks, and I look at how people can be sometimes so risk-averse that it then stops them from taking advantage of the technology that would actually, to some degree, protect them from a risk of some description. But mm-hmm. I must admit, switching over to the DV switch completely and turning my back on the standard switch, that was another one of those Rubicons, you know, deciding that I wasn't going to use a Windows VC anymore. Um, and I guess it came with me moving over to VMware I wanted to be on the not bleeding edge but at least leading edge of some of the stuff I'm doing Um, because bleeding edge can be a little bit of an unpleasant experience when you're trying to get other bits of software to work but leading edge a little bit on on that particular technology but it, it paid dividends on the management side because you know when you're learning something new and you don't really know it very well and it says it's got these network requirements and you go yeah 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 and then you start getting more and more involved in it and you go oh I've I've missed something out here. I've not done something right. And one of them was forgetting that um, a vCloud cell needs two NICs, one for the web and one for the console. I forgot to create a port group for the console on a separate VLAN. Now, I have eight hosts with standard switches. That would have been I'd be reaching for my power CLI to put all those port groups on. With the distributed switch, it was right-click, new port group. Job done. Which meant the time that saved me, I could invest into something that was much more valuable, which was actually learning the technology, rather than actually trying to meet the requirements of the technology. So in the way, I see the advantage of a distributed switch, especially in a lab environment, is being able to quickly reconfigure something because you dropped the ball and didn't realize that you had to do this, that, and the other to make a requirement, you know. Same came with uh, VLANing as well. I, I did a lot more VLANing in my lab environment recently. Uh, Being able to play around with the switch configuration until I was happy with it without having to touch each standard switch individually, it saved me so much time. So I sometimes just think the time factor alone is enough. But I I think it will probably take a while because even people like myself and Jason Bosch and others, back in the kind of four or five days, were still saying, we recommend uh, distributed switches for virtual machines and standard switches for internal comms. And that's another best practice, which I think is perhaps one that is now ripe for us going, well, is this really a best practice anymore? It's the Technology, yeah. going back to what I was saying before, the technology has improved, so maybe the best practice needs to move as well. And that that's not just VMware saying there's a new best practice. It's us keeping up to date with the technologies changes and going, hmm, well, maybe that best practice isn't as best as it used to be. I, I don't know. Am I talking off the top of my head here? Do no, no it definitely
1: <laughs> it definitely needs to you know that's the problem I have with best practice, and you know i've actually written basically what you 're saying is that best practice you know it's back in the day it was a lot of people tried and, and either failed or were successful, and a, a best practice kind of rose out of you know what we were doing mm-hmm. um we don't have the luxury of that time anymore we don't have that baked time that can make a best practice you know live to any length of time where it really you know, for, for the most part, there's some corner best practices that I'll definitely say are, are good to know. But um, how you know how long? Uh, vsphere, uh, there's a new version every six to twelve months. You know, a dot release every year, I think, and a full version release every two years. Uh, it's just at that kind of pace. How can you really form any best practices? There's so many changes coming out that you know when we get a best practice to avoid one bullet, VMware just removes the bullet. You know, and then we don't have to dodge that anymore and this best practice is now garbage. So,
0: Yeah, I think also as Pat was saying and this is something I was saying at the Swedish VMUG is that vendors produce the best practices and sometimes they are aligned around not real experiences in the field but trying to make sure customers don't implement something that reveals a flaw in, in the product or a limitation of the product. But I, often the number of times I've seen customers hide behind best practices. So why did you do this? Well, it was a VMware best practice, they said, or it was a Microsoft best practice. And I say to them, yeah, but the best practice doesn't say open up one's forehead, take out one's frontal lobe, and then abnegate (laughs) all responsibilities for any mental thought. It's just a best practice. It didn't say required. It might have said recommended, which is a little bit less strongly worded, or it might be a best practice, which, you know, in most cases, for most customers, it's a best practice to use X and Y. Well, you know, not everybody is the same at the end of the day.
1: Right, right. And that's where I really think um, whenever you're working with a designer or your environment, you need to look and see the use case. You know that's why, that's why the consultant answer is always it depends. Because no matter how best the practice is, we need to know what your environment is first before we recommend anything. And internally, you need to look at your environment and figure out what you need before you say, you know, you use that shield of, oh, it's a best practice. So, you know, my hands are tied. I can't do anything about it.
0: Yeah, I think it's almost like it becomes, again, ping pong, you know. Um you know, either people hide behind the best practices from a, a consultancy perspective, or the customer hides behind best practices because somebody's come in and questioned the way they're doing something. Um, I I just don't I don't think we're aided by the best practice becoming like a kind of CYA thing. You know, a great way of covering your butt, whether you're a, whether you've given the advice or whether you've taken the advice. I think sometimes the best practices used as a kind of way of. You know, like a, a joker or the card, you
1: know. If you can back it up, though, if you can cite a best practice and say, you know, you can't just say it's a best practice, you know, no no whammies, I'm safe. You can say it's a best practice, and here's why it's a best practice and why we use it. Mm-hmm. And you can explain that, I think then you're okay. I don't think, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying best practice. They're, 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 they're there for a reason, but if you can explain the why behind it, I think you can, you can justify it just fine. You know, you can move forward with that.
0: Well, Chris, um, it's been wonderful chatting to you. I have no idea how long we've talked for. I had <laughs> to keep an idea on the, on the time. Uh, I think we chatted for a little bit before the hour, but thank you very much for uh, taking part in the Genwag. Um, I'm sure we'll have you on again. Uh, if you're at VMworld next year, we should get together and do a, a mini-wag as well, but uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Absolutely. Hope to see you there.
0: Thanks a lot for your time.
1: All right. Take care.